You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Alex Honnold once said that being in Black Diamond's solution harness feels like home. And that's either a ringing endorsement from one of the best or a desperate cry for help. The royal we here at the Enormacast is just going to assume it's the former, because the latter is quite complicated. And besides, we climb in a solution too. Not a sport harness or a trad harness, it's the one harness that stays in my pack for everything, because it's comfy and svelte without all the extra muckety-muck. I mean, really, what's a full-strength haul loop actually for? Anyone? Anyone? Neither Smoot or Holly can tell you why you'd ever want 2,000 pounds hanging off your ass while you're climbing. So feel like you're home in a cleanly designed, comfortable solution harness from Black Diamond. And check out all their soft goods at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite retailer. Black Diamond, a proud sponsor of the Enormacast. Does your neck hurt playing someone else's project? Does your partner get in way over his head even on the warm-ups? Does the phrase, I'll just do this move one more time, make your eyeballs spin? Then let Belay Specs fight for you. When my boyfriend started falling lower and lower on his project, Belay Specs saved my neck and got me a new boyfriend. Belayer neck pain, also known as BNP, can interfere with work, play, family, and snapping your head around at the gym to check out those abs. So if your neck has been injured in an epic belay session, go to belayspecs.com to see if you qualify for a pair of belay specs and to get what you deserve. Entry Normacast at checkout for a discount. Belay specs is not licensed to give legal advice to anyone. Results may vary by steepness. If belay specs cause you to trip, fall down, run into a door, nausea, dry mouth, you're probably too high to climb to begin with. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the... Uh... Enormo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's out. Out town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll say, you really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Everyone record this on your phones, and then everyone can send me the uh, the, the files, the and see what we get. It's a crowdsourced EnormaCast. All right, we are going to go ahead and get started. Um, I expected a sound person to be here a while ago, but um, then I was like, oh my God, I get to do one of these live shows and not have to do sound at the same time. It's going to be so awesome. Anyway, so that didn't happen. So hopefully we get something recorded out of this. If anybody's heard any of the live shows, I usually make some caveat at the beginning of those when I put them out that, like, this is what happened, and this is what happened, and this is why it doesn't sound this way. But it's a reward to all of you guys for coming. This may just go into your brains and never be heard again. So um, thanks for coming. Um, this is the Enormacast. Please forgive us for that if that's the situation. <laughs> 
hopefully it'll then leave your brains at some point. But um, yeah, this is the Enormcast. Uh, some of you folks probably know why you showed up here. Other people maybe just dropped in. This is a podcast about rock climbing, mountaineering, alpinism that I started uh, something like six years ago. And I've been doing a live show at the, uh, at the Five Point Film Festival, I think almost from its start. Uh, maybe I, the first year I didn't, but uh, this is probably like our fifth year doing this as well. So um, thanks for coming. The live shows are, are um, a nice way to connect with everybody. Um, and also when the Five Point brings all these people to t- town, it's always nice to sit down and talk with them. Um, today's show is going to be a, a little moderated conversation. I invited my friend Brendan Leonard, who's been on the show a couple times. Uh, up to uh, to help out today, which is awesome. And um, my mentor, uh, who he doesn't know he was my mentor really. Uh, Fitzka Hall is also here, and you've been on a live show before, though. So I think this isn't your first go. This is my first go, really. I, yeah. thought, I thought you sat on the couch at Bonfire once. No, I don't think so. Okay, cool. I, I'm losing my mind, but I don't. No, I don't think I've been on the show. He does before. have little kids, so I, that, yes, that like does that to you too. What's that? I feel like I remember you being. They yeah. were making this up. Yeah, I, don't, I think he was. I think he's the one forgetting about it. So, anyhow, go. nevertheless, I invited these guys up here to sort of moderate or Brendan to moderate a conversation uh, with Fitz and I um, a little bit about podcasting and kind of our look at why we started it, the landscape that has changed uh, considerably since we started it, and uh, tell some stories about that. But also get to know Fitz as well because I've always wanted to have him on on the show um, as an outdoorsman and as, as a client. Climber, uh, just in his own right, but I think our connection is really about this this podcasting thing uh, because he he was a, an inspiration to me in the beginning because he's he was already in we'll five or six years. So. Questions. Okay, so I'm going to hand it over to Brendan and uh, we'll get going. Uh, I had I had this whole preamble prepared because I thought this was my show. Okay, um, I'm sorry. Go. <laughs> I'll just cut that out. I'll just um, cut all that no, stuff you're, out. Um, you're probably wondering why I've asked you both to be here today. Anyway, yeah. we'll, just, we'll just go off. Um, yeah, I'm excited to do this, too, when, when Chris asked me, because uh, both of you guys have been at a distance mentors for me, where I've like looked up and said, oh, I wonder if I could do something similar to that, or creatively looking at both of what you've done. Um, so I, I just put together a set of questions, because I'm a journalist, um, and we'll kind of go through those a little bit. Um, would you like to go in order of seniority, according to whose podcast is older? Yeah, or I do. Yeah, oh, okay. Um, I, th- I want to start with, I want a story I tell a lot, um, which I think you'll you'll be a fan of as well, is Fitz's story of how he started the Dirtbag Diaries, because I think it's a story of, to me, and you can correct me because I'm just going to ask you to tell it, but you're finding frustration in getting published uh, in regular writing in magazines and decided to read stories into a recorder in your closet in Ballard, right? And from there, I feel like everything else you've done has sprung from that decision. Maybe I'm making it too dramatic, though. How would you tell the story? Um, no, I mean, it's not It's not overly dramatic. I don't know. It didn't seem too harrowing to me when you just put it there. <laughs> yeah, the closet. I mean, were the lights on? No, like, it's, it was on it. really sketchy, let me tell you. No, uh, I, I mean, I was... Um, 
you know, I was always a very, very passionate climber. And I was always, before I really was a climber, I was always a passionate writer. And um, I thought I was actually going to go into the to the world of, of political journalism. I had an apprenticeship doing that. And um, the media landscape in the last 20 years is very different. Like, I graduated school and it was like, hey, all that's out the window. And it was pretty clear that the past four were going to be really difficult. And um, I actually was sort of forced to become an outdoor writer, if that makes sense, because it was the only thing I could sell. And I would, was able to cobble together jobs. But even that was really difficult. And there was a, there was a point um, where I sold more stories that year. And then when I went and did the taxes, I got paid less money. And I was like, wait a second, you know, what, what's that about? And it was the fact that the magazines were starting to slowly kind of die and that they were just paying me less. And they don't, when you're a freelancer, they don't tell you they're paying you less. They just pay you less. And, um, it was really clear that the things that I wanted to do in my life, whether that was, uh, you know, be able to pay rent at that stage uh, to to one day you know have a family. They weren't going to be possible with the path of writing because I needed to do something else with my life, and that was kind of one of those realities that at twenty seven or twenty eight was a little kind of felt like oh this thing you poured your heart into this thing you've gone to school for all this training is like you got to throw that out the window and you know do something else and my last hurrah was basically taking all these stories that I thought were really good um, and putting them yeah stepping into this little tiny closet on a very busy street my house was I was actually in Oregon at that stage and lived on a busy road right across the street from like a big grocery store and there's like trucks rumbling by and exactly right like right now and uh, I didn't feel very at home post and yeah I did it and it was and and the reality was yeah there it was kind of a lot that's so awesome actually (laughs) it was perfect Um, (laughs) what year is this not to interrupt uh, that was 2007 so yeah and podcasting at that stage was super young I mean maybe it had only been around for a year or something like that Um, and I just did it as a way to just be like I got time to kill and I put these stories out there and it was really clear. I released them. And when you do this and you start your own thing, you look at the, the numbers, you see who is there, you see who's like, you're like, Oh, it's really exciting. And it was like, okay. So I sent an email to 30 friends and the 30 friends listened to it. And then the next morning I checked and it was like 300 people listened to it. And I was like, I don't know 300 people. Um, and then the next day it was like 3000 people had listened to it. And I was like, I get a second chance at this whole thing. It's like, I don't, I don't get to do it the way I imagined doing this, but I get to do it in a way that I'll have to imagine a new way forward. And that to me, I think is, um, you know, the heart of the story is that I think that there's a reality is that I hope it's the same way for people now, whether they're doing films or whether they're doing podcasts or whether they're um, writing or whatever it is, is that the truth of it, I think in the creative world is that you, we often look at it as having gatekeepers, you know, people that are like, well, if I can only convince this person to let me do this. And the truth of it is that the technology has gotten so accessible that we actually have the ability to, to knock, we just remove the gatekeepers. 
and you get to do your own thing. And that's that's essentially like I stumbled into that reality. And what what year was it about? Two thousand seven. Okay, oh, you said that. Sorry, yeah. I, I have to ask a couple questions. Or yeah, just, yeah, that's fine. I, was, I probably started in like two thousand. Okay, in the two thousand. Well, and it was like this beautiful moment of podcasting. And how did you? Sorry, is this on your list? I just no. I wanted to ask him what the story was. The first one. Oh, okay. Well, just real quick, how did you know about podcasting? At all, because it was like, I mean, it was super underground. Because I was a nerd. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I mean, yeah. That, that was, that was, you, you had to be engaged in new technology. I mean, it was, all that stuff was really at that stage meant for college dorm rooms. Yeah. That's it was like was completely DIY. It. Yeah. Like it nobody, was, NPR hadn't done any, none of this stuff. So it was like, I'm just jealous because you were, you know, that was like the purest form of podcasting existed at that time only to, you know, continually be beaten down now by, by commerce. But anyway, I just wanted to put that in there. So go ahead. Sorry. Taking a dark turn. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> No, we'll get there. What was that? What was the first story you read into? What was the first episode? Uh, it was a story about my. Um, I had. A, I lived in Tahoe in California beforehand, and we had left. You know, a very idyllic life. Uh, we lived in this uh, kind of like caretaker mother-in-law unit on this home that was lakefront in Lake Tahoe. That's the only time I'm ever going to live in a lakefront home on Lake Tahoe, unfortunately. But it was awesome. But our landlord was this... Uh, I think he was a, uh, a kind of high-powered lawyer from the Bay Area, and he was a nice guy. And I was always sort of like, huh, who is this guy? And one day he showed me his ski collection, and he had this mono board that was so... He was so proud of it. And so it was a story about this fact that he and I actually had a connection even though it seemed to my, at that stage, my 25 year old self, that this person was from like another planet and that we actually shared similar values because of our connections to the outdoors. I thought it was the mono board. It was the mono board. Has, uh, how many downloads does it have now? That I have no idea. I've stopped looking at the numbers. 30, 3,100. Yep. 30, 3,103. <laughs> uh, somebody referenced, I was talking to a friend and they were talking about starting a podcast and they were like, I'd really love to go see the studio duct tape than beer has. And I go, do they have a studio? I don't think they, I don't think, yeah, I think if you want to start a podcast, you can do it in your closet. And, you know, I recorded in your guys' closet in Ballard. You, you did. We do have a studio now, though. It yeah. is, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's not like... Still it's not grand. Still kind of a closet. la di da yeah. Studio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, they have interns, too. So. Yeah. And, uh, well, yeah. We're going to get into your hot tub and stuff later. Like, no. um, <laughs> this is like commerce. Here. So you come along, this is almost five years later, and there are yeah. a ton of, like, not a ton of outdoor podcasts still, like the Dirtbag Diaries. It's 2000, 2011, 2012. Uh, yeah, 12. No, December of 11. Okay. Actually. So 12 is kind of my first year. So you're not you're not super huge by then, but you're aware of the, the dirtbag. No, he's huge. Okay. I mean, within the little niche. Hot tub of, by 2011? I did. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is he was huge within this, like, you know, yeah. on the iTunes thing, it's like podcast, recreation, sports, outdoor. Like, you got to go deep, deep into layers, and then all of a sudden you seem really important. Yeah. Um, uh, and that was pre like eight million gun podcasts, which tend to dominate that field wow. now. But um, but no, he was around, and I knew about it, and I listened, and I tapped in, and um, and so I think right around the start of mine, yeah, it was like his. I remember it's a, some article about mine mentioned yours being six years old, so it was 
right about then. And what are you what are you doing for work at this point? Um, I was uh, paint, I'm still kind of, but I paint houses here yeah. in the valley. I live here in Carbondale. And um, yeah, I was painting houses, uh, seas like pretty seasonally. I kind of like um, I was a high school teacher here, and then um, various things uh, meant that I was a painter. Then no, nothing bad. I just thought I, I quit teaching, and I thought I was going to move and teach somewhere else because of the real estate costs compared to the uh, teacher pay, which was like teacher pay was like under this wood, and the housing cost was up there somewhere. So I was like, I'm going to get out of here and go somewhere where a teacher can actually buy a house. And um, that hardly exists in Colorado, but at, at that time, you know, Western Slope, like Grand Junction or something. What did you teach? Uh, English. Yeah, but I didn't. I quit the job, and then I forgot to leave, basically. <laughs> and uh, but what to? This is a long-winded story, but it has to do with climbing. And I was like, you know what? I don't have a job. I might as well like climb again for a little while. And I'm 35 at this time. About I'm like, I'll just you know be a climbing bunk for a year, and then I'll go get this job. And that kind of lasted almost two years. And I literally got like job offers on you know emails for job offers while sitting at a bar in Greece on Kalimnos you know looking out at, at at the island and the sunset and everything else and they're like yeah we have this job for you at Central which was in Grand Junction not not the best of high schools there but and I just was like well I'm in Greece right now I can't make a I can't make a interview and they're like well we could do it on Skype and I'm like yeah, I don't care. I don't. I, maybe next fall, you know, or let's talk about it later. So that happened. But then I ran out of money, and I came back to Carbondale, and I started teaching. I mean, I started painting houses, and then like seven years went by, like, and I was. Uh, I, I, at first, I was like painting houses, and then saving money to go on another trip. You know, paint for like two months, and then go on a trip, and then paint for like five months, and go on a trip, and then. Then one day I woke up and I didn't have a trip on the other side of it, and I just had to accept the fact that I was a painter. No, I just that's what I was doing. It was not like I'm just doing this so I can go on trips. I'm like no, I'm, I'm a you know 37 year old college graduate painter. Um, but the 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 sad and ironic part is I made more money in less time in this valley than teaching. So uh, support your teachers because you know when a you know schlub painter can just bang out the same salary in probably nine months, about the same amount they're working. Um, but I'm painting houses like. I mean, it, uh, um, my boss's wife's here, hello. Uh, but she knows how it is. It's like, yeah, you should pay your teachers more. And where's my husband? Uh, he's, he's leaving for Europe, right? Canada. Canada. To ski, right? Yeah, to ski. So, yeah, so. Anyway, so it's a good lifestyle, and it fit with climbing. So I, what was the question? <laughs> I just wanted to get your thoughts on the importance of education. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> go Arizona, Oklahoma. Who else is walking out? Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, well, we can talk about podcasting instead. Yeah, okay. so I, I think it's important to note that while you were teaching, you were writing about climbing for magazines, too. Occasionally, and I balk a little bit at the writer thing because I know writers, people who, who, who like, could work be, the craft. humble, just... And no, but I just I, I I've written for climbing magazines and Rock and Ice and stuff mostly because they were here, um, and so I was friends with people, and so you know you have a lot of writing and freelancing is ins. Who who are you in with, and who do you know, and and instead of just sending out stuff to to people who don't know you. So that was a big part of it. Um, my English degree helped, but but when I say I'm not never been a writer, I don't like sit and write daily and like work on the craft. 
I just knew people I had like some fun stories to tell and some photo support, which is a big part of getting something published in a climbing magazine. So I, I was occasionally writing and, and putting stuff uh, down on paper and getting paid for it, but was never like fits where he was trying to, you know, pay rent with that money. It was always just like a creative project that I got to do. And I was like, whoa, somebody's paying me. Um, but I could tell, you know, you know, when I would put in hours and hours and then edit and hours and hours and hours and hours. And then you got the check. You were like, do not figure out your hourly on this because it's going to break your heart. It's like worse pay than teaching. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, when you can go and, and, you know, work your regular job, you know, for four days and make just as much money, um, you know, it's kind of like, whoa, this is my creative soul I'm giving you guys. And they're like, one, two, three, there you go. There's your money. (laughs) So, okay. So 2011 ish, you are painting houses did the podcast sort of spring out of sort of like, I don't want this to be just what I do, paint houses and climb? Or where, where did this come from? Um, it, it, I think not as consciously as that, but I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm happy to make my work my work and be, you know, do creative things elsewhere. I'm not, I don't, I mean, I know there's, oh, you got to, you know, your work has to be something you love and you're passionate yeah, that's great. But the reality of it is, is that most of us don't get to do that. And even if we do, you know, if you, your passion becomes your work, a lot of times it is no longer your passion after a long time. I mean, for me, guiding was like that guiding climbing, like I got burnt out on it and I was like, this is actually ruining my love of climbing right now. And I got to stop. So nevertheless, I was able to, I'm totally able to divorce the two, but not be like, I hate being a painter. I need to do something creative. It wasn't like that. It really was about the fact that painting allowed me to listen to podcasts and I discovered them in that era. And, you know, your music's like, you know, how many times am I going to listen to Rush 2112, you know, while I'm painting? Like 150, 200? I mean, after that, right about 200, I'm like, I can't listen to this again. Well, maybe one more time. I can't. Anyway, but um, so, yeah, the podcast just took over music and. And I just and the other cool thing was I felt like, wow, this medium can give out so much information. And my big story that I tell is that I listened to an old like a DIY kind of when I started listening, there was this hump that was happening where people were getting more serious about their podcast production value and everything else. This one was still a DIY um, the history of Rome. And it was like 160-some episodes, half hour or so on Roman history, like nitty-gritty. Although the guy was kind of funny, too. I don't know. Did you ever listen to that one? I did. I, just, I mean, not all. Right. I didn't need to go that deep, but yes. Well, when you're painting, I could do, you know, I could do eight, ten episodes a day. And what I realized was that I was getting like... Uh, I mean, I was getting semesters worth of Roman history. You know, how many lectures is that like into one thing? But what really happened is I went to Sicily to go climbing and I hung out in Rome for a few days and I was on the island of Sicily, which all this great stuff happened with the Carthaginians and all this, you know, but I knew all this stuff. Like I walked around Rome like that's, you know, Trajan's pillar. That's this. That's that. You know, it's like. Wow, I just got like, you know, a, a half a degree in Roman history by painting and listening to this guy talk about Roman history. And so that was the moment kind of like, wow, this is a really valuable medium. And that dude was just a guy in his house. And, if, you know, I always talk about stealing Mark Maron's format, which is what I did. 
uh, the, the, the what the fuck with Mark Marin, but his like kind of just little bit of sense of humor also really influenced me. And also the fact that you knew, he, he kind of talked about his Mrs. Roman history podcast, like his wife and his family, never specifically, but like you knew he was just doing this and trying to make it happen like at his desk. And uh, it was so much work put into it. And I hope he was getting paid. And I don't know, you know, I know he had some, some, some hustles to get paid, um, but it was really great. And just, I don't know what happened to the guy if he kept doing podcasts or not, but he stopped. I mean, he ran out of Roman history, like, you know, <laughs> Const- you know, Constantinople, you know, Istanbul now, and that was the end of it. So, um, <laughs> cue the song, you know, <laughs> so thanks for the abbreviated lesson. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> okay. That was so, the end, by the way. So you, Roman Empire had the the the, uh, the uh, capital had moved from Rome, you, you know, to, to Constantinople. Many people think the fall of Rome was the end of the Roman Empire. It was not. <laughs> <laughs> T- Tiffany Haddish, the comedian, has a similar bit about how you can learn anything on YouTube. It's it's really it's super funny. Um, so I would I was just gonna say I would I view your podcast as uh, the WTF of climbing. You Thanks. Know, you're you're way less neurotic than Mark Marin. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. Totally. We don't we don't have to listen to your failed Saturday Night Live audition story like every other episode, which is nice. But and then I would say Fitz's is you know he's more like the Ira Glass of the outdoors of this American life. It's two different formats, right? It's like storytelling and your straight up interviews, which I think you're really good at. Um, and I think the WTF map for your podcast really works out well. I was going to ask you, Fitz, like what, who did you listen to early on when you were thinking, how do I make this sort of storytelling thing happen? Did you have anybody like where you went, oh, this is similar. Okay, I'll just do something like this, but with my stories. Yeah, I mean, what you brought it up, it was Ira Glass and This American Life. I mean, I very clearly remember the first time I heard that show, probably in the late 90s, there's like walking in and just being like, this doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard before. I think there was like Prairie Home, Home Companion, which if someone likes that show in this room, I'm really sorry, but I <laughs> cannot stand Prairie Home Companion. And I know I've just offended God. God this room. I just did it. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Anyway, but uh, when I heard This American Life, I was like, wow, what is this? This is different. And it always stuck with me. And um, Ira Glass, I... I had a very clear, clear thing is like you, you learn through imitation and he encouraged young people or young creatives to basically go out and, um, do a lot of work, uh, borrow from other people, not plagiarize, but like borrow concepts from other people, try them on, take what you like, leave what you don't. And I just, I took that to heart and I just started doing it and, and being like, well, there's no one else doing that. This doesn't exist in the outdoors. This would be cool if it did this way. And, um, you know, that's what I did. I, it's not entirely, I wish I had like a grander story, but I think that is kind of a pretty valid takeaway is that you, you learn from other people and you learn from other people's work. And then hopefully you're lucky enough that you get to find your own voice along the way. Was there a point? I think this is a, I, I think there's a funny story coming from this, but I think early on, I remember you saying people or maybe Becca told me that you, people would recognize your voice sometimes when you were out in public and be like, are you Fitz Kahl from the Dirtbag Diaries? And you weren't super good at handling it. Uh, no, I was. I was like, I'm. I'm still terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> like it. It. Uh, it. The. I think 
radio is I was having this conversation um, with a friend this morning actually where radio is a safe place where you can kind of be detached um, and you know it's like you you're you're in a closet by yourself and then at the same point you're on stage simultaneously and it's this really nice bit and for me it was really I was not um, prepared for that kind of interaction ever and I was horribly awkward like I would make it terrible like someone would be like oh I'm such a fan I'd be like and like run away and like I'd be like I just I literally would like run away and shrink and Becca would be like yeah that's that's him that's that's who it is and and I wasn't I mean not that that happened a lot I'm making it sound like it was like I was famous or something like that I wasn't famous but it did happen and I was horrible at um, doing it and I still have to kind of take a deep breath and be like Okay, don't act like you've never done this before. Like, like say thank you, and and uh, go from there. But it's still a struggle. Uh, when that started happening, did you did you realize that? Oh wow, this is kind of getting out there a bit. This this podcast, like it's maybe succeeding. Like if people are behind me in line at the coffee shop and recognizing when I order a latte that I'm the same guy who told the story on. Yeah. Listen yeah, me. I mean. Um, I already knew it. I guess that sounds, I don't mean to sound vain about it, but like because of the point that that was so early in the whole process is that community was small. And so the amount of, the amount of feedback you would get, you understood that this mattered to people. And at the same point, that was when social media was starting to creep up and really become something that, I mean, it's, it's kind of wild to think that it's only really been 10 years since you had a Facebook account, but that was, people were already starting to connect around this. So I felt very anonymous like on a physical level, but like inside the world of the computer and all that, it, it felt like I understood that there was something behind the show already. So it was a little hard to, when the digital became analog, that was awkward. <laughs> that was an awkward period for sure. Uh, well, I hope you're doing better about it now. It's, it's tough to I've gotten there. Okay. <laughs> Has that happened to you? What's that? Like not just regionally, have you been recognized? Well, your voice recognized? Yeah. No, it happens all the time. Are you better about it than Fitz is? Um, I think so. Probably. <laughs> I mean, we have... I hope so. We, yeah, Fitz and I, we definitely have different personalities. Um, I have this weird, uh, like, introvert, extrovert, extrovert, rather, intro, introvert, extrovert thing, um, where it's sort of like I do both. I can solo El Cap for you know, a week and a half, or I can be, you know, just super social. So it started happening, actually, um, there was a precursor uh, to the enormous cast in terms of my personal fame, and that was the aid rant, which was a, a little clip, uh, early YouTube, like, climbing viral clip. It's still out there. It's still out there. It has over 100,000 views, um, which is, you know, partially because of the podcast now, but it, it cranked up a lot, like, again, early on when YouTube was really just starting, and um, that actually got me a little bit of fame, and... Uh, some hatred. Uh, you'd have to watch it. It was, you know, people can't take a joke. To, to paraphrase, it's like basically that the the aid, aid climbing grading system. Like if someone has to die to make it a hard climb, like in one sentence. Right, and 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 also I kind of claim that aid climbing was really easy. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, nobody likes to be told the thing that they've been working on their whole life is easy so but it was a joke but yeah anyway the internet was yeah it was already like 
Troll City. But um, anyhow, so there was that. But yeah, the, the voice thing, I, I think I have a distinct voice, uh, literally. Not, not my voice, like writing voice, but um, I, yeah, I get it all the time. And I can... I can watch it happen in some ways because I can go up to the crag and then as soon as I yell something to my partner, I see head snap and stuff. So, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, Steph's gone, but she can attest to my, my uh, baby mama can attest to the uh, to sort of the recognition thing. But it's fun, and the 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 thing about it that's cool, and I think Fitz has also experienced this, is that. Despite the fact that the aid rant had a 50-50 love-hate thing, the, the Enormacast, I mean, I've been really astounded in the six or seven years that it's, I mean, almost 100% positivity about this thing that's on the Internet, which is like nothing on the Internet makes everybody happy. And either the, the it doesn't give enough fuel to the trolls or they just don't bother maybe because I don't do that much that's controversial, but... You know, there, there's criticisms, uh, and almost all of them valid. You know, he talks about himself too much. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Is this enjoyable for you? Yeah, you know. Are your I critics going to hate this? Yeah, they are, but they don't listen. So, but yeah, so it's been great. So when I do meet people or people recognize me, you know, nobody is like going to give me a hard time. And it's always just like great to meet people. And, I, and I've... I, I, I'm not a sort of sentimental or sort of wishy-washy person um, about like the you know doing all this good in the world, but we've certainly created a community around the podcast, and you know I think I work hard to sort of make sure that people understand the community of climbing and what it means to be part of it and all the positivity that's in it, and so all of that's just given back to me. 100% whether I'm at a festival or just at the crag or anything else. I mean, I had people give me money this year just out of their wallets at the crag. Like, well, I've been meaning to donate. I have my wallet here and, like, gave me some money. So I was like, yeah, right on. That was the first time, though. Here's a bag of weed, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, right on. Anyway, but, uh, yeah, so to answer your question, it happens all the time. Like, I can almost count on it. I, th I think what's interesting that you guys have both probably experienced or that you don't see necessarily, it's not directly coming to you, but you're giving people these pieces of culture that they're, that they're using to communicate with their friends, you know, that you don't necessarily hear about that, but they're, you know, I was just talking to Graham Zimmerman this week about your interview with Steve Swenson, and I said, oh, my favorite quote from that podcast was Steve Swenson going, pain is just a feeling, you know, and I was at the time doing training for an ultramarathon, I'm like, this is perfect. I'm going to keep repeating this to myself. And I know the dirtbag guys has been that for so many people as well, where we're just, you know, you're not privy to those conversations, but they're out there and people are like, Oh, if you listen to this episode, you have to listen to this episode. It's my favorite of all time. And you don't necessarily hear about that stuff, but you're giving that to people, which is probably the greatest thing about the whole thing. I mean, besides people coming up and giving you cash. Yeah, that's pretty great. So, yeah. um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, so you knew Fitz had been, uh, you know, had been doing well with his podcast and you were kind of, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but you're like thinking about starting a podcast and you were hoping he might, you know, give you a little bit of, of beta on how to how to succeed in this. What happened? Uh, yeah, there's a story. I, I don't know if it's ever been on the show or not, but, um, you know, I started it, it the way everybody started podcasts then, uh, or a lot, most people, where you just started it. And then afterwards you were like, well, you know, oh, people are listening. And then it's weird because the creative projects, 
they're easy to say like this thing is just for me but but then you know if you have a life and you have rent to pay and and I didn't have a kid at the time but all those things you know money becomes this consideration and I think artists across the world you know I'm not an artist but you know creators whatever struggle with this thing about money and so pretty soon I was like well how could I make a little money off of this but also you want a little bit of like uh, recognition or validation from the industry, quote unquote, you know, because I knew a lot of people were listening. It was already coming back to me, you know, some of the things I was saying were catching on or people were talking about them. And so I was like, all right, let me see if I can get some, some, you know, people interested in maybe sponsoring this thing. Right. And so, and I knew his had, you know, Patagonia was on board at the time, New Belgium. I don't know who, who's uh, all these people are still your, your main folks with that, but Pepsi is now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, that'd be great, actually. They have so much money. Um, they wouldn't even like, yeah. So whatever they're paying me, they they spend more on toner in a, like a day at their office. But anyhow, so yeah, I was just like, well, let me try. So I sent out the the requisite emails, and like, I just got back the most pat like bullshit answers to these emails. Like, we're just not doing web or we're not doing blogs right at the moment. And I'm just like, I'm down a fucking blog. Like, this is something totally different. And then I was at a POV thing here with Backbone. You were there. Uh, the thing that's going to happen this afternoon is five years ago. And then, and then I think Penn pronounced podcast dead and then brought you up on the, to talk to everybody. Um, do you remember that? Yeah, very clearly. <laughs> Here's the guy who knows about yeah. this dying this dead thing. But look, he's, it's working anyway. He's still doing it. You know, bring him well, out and he like... Bring the freak up. <laughs> Here's the nerd, everyone. It was like me and Jimmy yeah. Chin. I was like, right. thanks, Penn. Yeah, thanks. Totally. <laughs> and that was five or six years ago. It's dead. Yeah, it's totally dead. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I sent the things and got total blow-offs and I got really mad and I left, left Fitz a message. We had talked a bit, you know, about technical stuff, I think, mostly. And I was like, what's going on? Like, how do I get through these people? Like, what did you do? How did you do this? And left this message and then I got in the shower and then all of a sudden the phone rings and I look at it and it's pen, it's uh, it's Fitz and I'm like, oh my God, and I get out of the shower and I'm like standing in my room, naked, wet, and I'm just like, what do I do? And I'm talking to him and he's like trying to talk me down off the ledge because I was like, I, I think I'm just going to blow this thing off, you know, screw it. And so he basically like told me to calm down and like... Yeah, I mean, his message, your message was like, look, what you're doing is really great, and it's going to catch on, people are going to notice, and you know it's going to work, and just, you know, don't worry, basically, like, don't worry about the validation now, they're going to come on board, and people are going to, you know, if people keep getting stoked on it, they have to recognize you, and, you know, by the time I was done, I was, like, shivering, and, like, thanks, and he probably thought I was in tears, but I really was just cold. <laughs> Did you know he was naked? I did not. I don't know if he informed me of that. I think Which is good. I'm really glad you didn't because I've been like, this is, I, yeah. This is it might have been a quicker conversation. That's why the video phone really is never no, caught on. Yeah, you don't want to do that. I think we're done here now that we've covered how Fitzcahal saved the normal cast. Yeah. I mean, well, thanks, dude. That was, was really nice of you. I don't think I saved it. I think he was doing a good job. And I think it is, t- it is you know, I think with anything, it's like, I, I think that with sometimes there is that validation. I think maybe a less kind word for it would be the entitlement of the business side of it. And I mean, I think that there's there's degrees of that, but you do. It's the business of creativity is difficult, and there's no denying that. And um, it, there's no denying that it is not like selling 
a widget or something like that, that there's a, there's like, you are selling, um, part of who you are in a way for better or for worse. And it can be quite painful. Well, the thing too, you mentioned the no gatekeepers and that's been the, the, I mean, I've been an evangelical for podcasting since then, because I was just like, you can, it's just, it's awesome. You can just create one and put it out there and there's no studio and there's no FCC and there's nobody telling you you can't swear and you can't do anything. And, but then all of a sudden I ran into the gatekeepers and the gatekeepers are, are people who, who want to sponsor your show. And the crowdsource thing works pretty good, but the internet in this is again, five, six years ago, it's always been a struggle how people make money on the internet because everything is pretty much free. You know, newspapers have gone down that way and, and magazines have gone down that way. And so struggling to monetize whatever you're putting on the internet, because it's like, we all start from this platform of it's free and podcasting is, everybody's why don't you charge for podcasting? It's like, it just doesn't, I don't know why, but you don't charge for it. And so everything is sponsorship, commercial based or getting someone to voluntarily give you money for something that they can have for free which works okay. I do get, you know, that's been a big support of the podcast, but it's tricky. It's tricky for sure. The patronage of the arts has changed vastly in the last, what, 20 years, I think. Um, what's one episode, what's one episode of the Dirtbag Diaries that nobody's ever heard it before? You, you meet them on an airplane, you're like, oh, I do this thing, and they say, oh, I'd like to listen to that. Where would you say they start? You don't have to say the ones that I've done for the Dirt Pack Diaries. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> Anything that Brendan Leonard's done. Um, no, I don't know. It's weird because I think that the Diaries has grown. I mean, if it's grown beyond me. And it, Jen sitting in the office, and she's incredible. And there's Elizabeth sitting next to her, and she's done stories. And um, it really, I knew really quickly that... Um, I wasn't terribly interesting and that I needed to move, move on from there. And so I think that we made it a home for a lot of as many voices as we could realistically sustain. And I think that's still a goal that we have and still grow. So for me, it's different because some of it's like the things I really love to report on. Like there was a, a story in 2008 and again, like the wonder of the internet at that moment in time. So I found out, I don't even know how I found these guys, but there were, um, these two soldiers who were deployed in Iraq, it was, um, they were inside the Sunni Triangle, and it was that really terrible point in that war where we were kind of getting our butts kicked and the troops were getting their butts kicked really badly. Um, and these two guys were climbers at home, and they, um, they needed something to stay sane. And they built this climbing wall in sort of a half-used uh, hangar on their their base. I sent you this guy. This guy emailed me. That's how you get the story. Is that how it is? No shit. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? I think so. Okay. Well, that's how that worked. Thank you. And um, and so I love that. And it was like I you know had to figure out I didn't have enough money to fly to Iraq, and. Uh, they were there and I think we just like figured it out on email over time and even then I think for the troops over there like the thought of Skyping was like you couldn't get that to work um, and so the ultimate thing is I shipped a recorder to Iraq which was probably like a scary investment for me at that stage would be like I'm sending a $400 thing to Iraq right now 
and I wrote them out their questions. And I remember this for me, this story is really cool because there was a point in the recording where they just threw away the questions and just started talking. And I remember getting, you know, five months later, kind of getting this recorder back and opening it up. And to me, that was that was the epitome of it was like, this is a platform for people to, um, you know, share stories that have meaning inside the outdoor community. And that's great. And there's been like so many others that are that are out there that that are it's be hard for me to pick one. What's that? What's the title of the episode? Uh, That one's called a lifeline home. How about you? Um. Well, you know, there's like the the uh, the meaningful episodes because um, they're not all meaningful. In fact, it's a, it's kind of spotty on my end of things. But um, you know, the the one everybody loves and is continues to be like pretty much the best one uh, was Mark D, or uh, Craig DiMartino's uh, episode where he lost his leg in a climbing accident. Uh, just a super dynamic speaker, which I didn't know anything about him really. And we did it here at Five Point, um, parked on the street in the in the in the mobile studio. Never met him, and then he proceeded to just like blow my mind. And I knew while he was doing it, we were like getting somewhere, you know. Um, but that was number eleven, and so and I have 148 episodes, and I've been living under its shadow ever since because <laughs> it's like, well, I'm good. I'm, I've done my best episode. <laughs> I can quit, but. And there's a lot of power in that. And he, you know, came back from it and he talks about his family and all their support. And it's really moving, you know, people. That's also another one where people where I first got a lot of really like strong feedback where guys were like, I was crying on the tube in London or whatever, you know, listening to it, which was like someone in London is listening to this. Well, of course, it's the Internet, you know, but that seemed really strange to me, Um, you know, and that they would like break down and, you know, while going to work, listening to this thing was pretty cool. Um, But for me, like the power sometimes of my version of podcasting, you know, to Fitz's version is that is the the. I don't, I mean, the word authenticity has been like hijacked by the industry, but the, the fact that in a lot of them, it was just me and uh, a few people like shooting the shit about climbing for, for 45 or 50 minutes and maybe not getting that deep, but just laughing and talking about it and relating in a way that everybody relates to climbing is, I think one of the things that I do well with the podcast is more the get to listen in to just like folks talking about climbing and and I realized after a while that I that was like a valid thing to do with my podcast as opposed to always be looking for this like thing to make people cry or to you know to move mountains with the thing and uh you know those episodes uh, and then of course I have a bunch with um Hayden Kennedy yeah yeah it's funny when you say that because I remember I was on a bench behind Kind Coffee in Estes Park. Uh, I had just gotten done climbing with my friend Josh, and he, was, he goes, have you heard of this podcast, The Normal Cast? And I go, no. And he goes, you got to listen to this episode with Craig DiMartino. And that was literally the first episode I ever listened to. And he's an incredible storyteller, um, and Fitz made a movie about him. So here we are, full circle again. Right. Um, and I couldn't say, hey, no, I'm over it now a little bit. But, um, you know... The, uh, those are the episodes too, where you know a lot, a couple of them were were the thing with Sarah Torre and and was pretty heavy. But you know, there's an episode or two where we're just talking, me and him and Andrew is the one I can think of, and like the meaning of it is now, like that we captured it. Yeah, 
and that you got to hang out and that it's on. Yeah, I've had more thoughts about that recently in the last few years, like about just like that was just a moment we got to have, you know, and it changes the dynamic when you're just interviewing somebody straight up as opposed to being like driving to the crag or whatever, where you're normally talking, you get to actually ask them questions and it's not, not awkward. And I don't know, maybe that's just between men and we don't know how to talk to each other, but, uh, you know, maybe that's it. Yeah. The beer helps. <laughs> Should we? I'm going to switch to climbing. I think since this is a climbing goal, yes, it sounds good. He gets very bored to tears. Like I don't give a shit. I don't want to start a podcast. I don't care. Um, no, I've been running a joke here that like since we started this, two podcasts launched. <laughs> you know those things where they're like every ten seconds, you know, someone gets diabetes. You know. But they're always really bad, though. They're always just like, someone gets killed and blah, blah, blah. And it's like never like, every 10 minutes, you know, a kitten is handed to a child. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody got a free refill. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like two podcasts came online uh, in the last 45 minutes, for sure. Just like, publish, yeah. (laughs) Fitz, have you ever climbed at Rifle? No, I've never climbed at Rifle. Oh, that's awkward. (laughs) Have you ever climbed an index? No, I have not. Oh, I have not. Okay. Go fish. Go fish. <laughs> um, I, I think that Fitz and I were talking about this a little bit on the way here, how sort of people who become, you know, climbing becomes part of their identity. They have sort of a formative period where you're, you're out all the time or like it's the most important thing in your life at that time. Um, do you have where it was the most important thing in your life. And you and I talked about this more as like it later on changes into a metaphor, but at the time it was just the the thing. Where were you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there was a, there was a pretty good chunk of time. I mean, for me, um, when I found climbing, I had something kind of just opened up inside of my mind a little bit. Where are we? The first, the Oh, first I was probably 18 years old and, um, I, I just there there it sounds so weird and it sounds woo woo but it, you you did this thing and it was like I'd grown up playing sports and I, there was nothing else like it that I'd ever done before and my instinct was to do it all the time you know I mean within within reason I didn't I managed to somehow make it through college but yeah the that was very much this this feeling and, and I. I I really followed it in my my twenties, and um, I think the thing that was always really clear though is that I could only do it so much, and then I would start to get bored, even though I was like ridiculously passionate about it, and and I would, I mean, I would somehow I didn't destroy my body, but I would never rest. Like I would go thirty days in a row of climbing if I could, and. Um, if I had to leave it for more than two days, I would get kind of anxious. And that was the same way I felt about creativity though. Cause it was like, they always kind of went hand in hand for me. And, um, there was a certain point where I just also knew that there was only, that there was going to be a, maybe not an end to climbing, but there was going to be an end to that sort of wave. And I was really fortunate enough. I won this, um, incredible grant, um, called the Bonderman grant, uh, that through the university of Washington, and basically it was like no strings attached travel and you could not study. You could not go find your family in Ireland. Uh, you had to do something totally on your own and they let me go climbing abroad. Um, and 
I was really good about it and I was like really careful with my money. And so I got to do it for six months and I was living in a cave in Western Australia, you know, so deep back in there. And the, I think there'd been rain. So like the road had turned to mush and you couldn't even go back. And I'm like inside of a cave. And I just realized like I missed the, the creative side of it is that climbing was a really creative in a lot of ways for me. Like the things I was doing, I was like, Oh, figuring things out, applying and looking for new routes and doing all that stuff. And it was really creative, but at the same point I always knew that. And, and I followed it through to the point where it felt like, huh, I've probably learned what I'm going to learn from climbing. And at that stage, it just, like I still love it, but it, the urgency of it has maybe left, um, the joy of it hasn't. What was the metaphor? Oh, there's so many metaphors. I mean, I think that, that it's like you do anything and long enough and you can kind of talk yourself into finding a story about that's meaning anyway. Right. I mean, realistically, we're really good at convincing you ourselves just that taking the romance. Out of I know. I'm sorry. Jesus. But no, I think that there was, I mean, I think I just learned a lot through it. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about taking calculated risks, um, that have relayed over into business that have relayed over into the rest of my life. And I, and I'm so grateful for this craft. I also had a thousand incredible moments that were everything from big to small to with friends to my, by myself. And, um, you know, that I think the biggest thing though, if I had is that there's wonder everywhere and that it's like, if you kind of spend your time and you look around, you, you got to do that because you'll go crazy if you don't. And, and now I see that in a lot of different places. I used to be like, Oh, I used to go really, really far away for it. And now I think I can find it pretty regularly right in front of me around the block. Yeah. Yeah. Not even that far. Yeah. <laughs> what do you miss about that time? Um, I miss not knowing what I'm going to do tomorrow, you know, or like, does that make sense? Like on that level of like being like, well, what's going to happen tomorrow? I'd be like, I don't know. We'll figure it out in the morning. And that's not, that's the, the things I've taken on in my life now demand a consolidated vision that you follow through over the course of years, probably decades. And it's to the grave. Hopefully not to the grave, but yeah. Like the 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 horizon line is far out there and it it's like the challenge is gonna be bigger and Mm -hmm. you um sort of settle in for the long haul and you do know what you're gonna do tomorrow. How about you? You mean Fort Collins at this point? Oh you mean starting climbing? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have a, a story that I've told on here before, so I won't tell the whole thing again, but um, I, I kind of saw myself as a climber before I'd ever climbed uh, when I was in the suburbs of Chicago. I literally created uh, with a, a coach at this my high school a training program for what we thought might be involved with climbing. He had climbed once or twice with the Knowles course, and so he kind of knew, but this was, you know, climbing didn't exist in the mainstream, so we just guessed and so I arrived in Colorado, like ready to climb physically. And uh, but you know, really, I was thinking about what you were saying about uh, you know making up or not making up, but like creating, finding this meaning, you know, in all these ways. And it's, that's always kind of afterwards, right? And the truth is, is I just like I wanted to be cool. 
And, and <laughs> you know, I'd always wanted to be cool. And when you try to be cool, usually you're being super uncool. Um, but and, and I was a rebel, and I, and I didn't find myself really enjoying sort of the, the, the suburban existence. And so, you know, I was this kind of rocker in high school, played music and guitars, and, like, that was cool. And... Then, you know, so part of it really, honestly, and I'm only 18, so it was, there wasn't like some big, really some big goal other than like, it seemed really fucking cool to be a rock climber. And pictures in the magazines that I did have that I did scrounge up, like super cool. And, you know, strong and like striving against, you know, hard things like that sounds super cool. So really that was, it just is simple like that. And then as you get into it and it infiltrates your life and it becomes your passion, you start to realize all as a, as an older person or, or looking back, you, you realize these things that it gave you and, and they filter into your life and how you approach all sorts of different things. But, um, I don't know that an 18 year old, 19 year old, 20 year old kid, you know, is like that kind of marrow dripping out of it when, when you're doing it, you're just like, this is cool. And that same thing, like, where are we going to climb tomorrow? You know, let's go and let's, you know, and then you spend a night out where you almost, you know, you're freezing and you're, it's raining on you and blah, blah, blah. And later on you feel like, wow, I really gained something getting through that. But in the moment you're just like, it sucks, you know? So, and I'm also kind of really, I'm super cynical actually in this, you know, kind of practical where like, I, I'm sort of like, you know, really, is that really real? Is that something that really happened or is this just part of the narrative? And so I'm always re-examining my, when I, and, and if you listen to the podcast and many of you may never have, or don't listen to a lot, but you know, I can be crusty as hell on that podcast. And it's part of that of like, every time you go climbing is not this epiphany. You know, most of the time you're just going to climb and you come home and like put your pack down and turn the television on, you know, and like it was just a day of climbing. But when you look at media, it's like every time you go climbing, like it's just like this whole movement in your head and this epiphany. And it's like I always joke, like if that happened to me every time I went climbing, I would have gone insane like 20 years ago. Like, no, I can't have another epiphany. Thank you. I just want to go watch TV and like. And so my podcast has a little bit of that in it of like, really, is it really this meaningful or is it just something we do to be cool? What are, what are the macro lessons though that you, I mean, you're looking back on almost, you know, like a couple of decades of climbing of like you're doing it still because it's meaningful. So what are the, what are the macro things that you've taken from it, from that whole, all this time? Again, as a self-examination, I'm curious all the time whether it's, shaped me or whether I gravitated towards it as a person that, 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 you know, wanted to do those things. So did it make me, I mean, I think I'm a, I'm a very motivated person when it comes to, you know, these projects, like we've been talking about the podcast and whatever it is. Um, I, I, I have a really, um, I think I'm, I'm very, uh, I can be very stubborn, but also that the, the, that's negative. But the other side of the court is that you're a hard worker. You, you know, you keep at something like you're bullheaded. Those things, did they come from climbing or do I like doing big roots on El Cap because I was already like that, you know? So, but the lessons I think come from, and that's not bullshit, is that like my best friends in the world, uh, my current partner, um, mother of my child. I mean, all these people, are, are, our relationships are formed by climbing in a lot of ways. And so 
I just, the community is so great. And, and, uh, that, that's kind of my lesson is that, um, you know, surround yourself with these people who, who don't mind discomfort, who don't mind working hard for a goal, who, for whom, uh, the natural world is an important thing. And I think all their other personality traits, you know, are going to kind of swirl around that in these positive ways. And climbers aren't cheats. They don't take the easy way. Um, they, they generally are not people who, who um, you know, want to gain something over on you as another person. And, and uh, it's just a really nice, great community. And I'm just, again, the, the chicken and the egg thing, it's like, did I join the community because I already wanted those values or did I discover them after I joined the community? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's tough. I mean, maybe I just lucked out and I found this thing or maybe I was, I would have found it no matter what, you know, it's kind of this weird question that you can't answer. Yeah. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from this guy, Tom Hansen. There's no cheating and climbing, only lying. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> we find you out. Yeah. Exactly. Mostly. What if it matters, uh, we find you out. Fitz, who did you tie in with in, in the early years of climbing who influenced both like what you did out there as a climber and how you live like today still? Is there someone like that? That's a sorry, that's a pretty we're getting really deep here. Um Huh, that's a good question. I don't really I um I can I, No no I I mean I think that first and um it's really interesting. My first climbing partner, we had some, we, I mean, we were really lucky. We didn't die a bunch. <laughs> like really, really lucky. Yeah, you can't die a bunch. <laughs> yeah. We would have done it. If we could have, we would have done it. But yeah, no, it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, I feel really lucky is that not everybody that I used to tie in, I'm close to now. Um, you know, but I think there's always these moments that we come back to. And I think that's a great example of like, um, Scott was, uh, you know, had that same sort of gregarious spirit, was searching. Um, you know, I met him in a class at school, and he, like, talked me into He was the guy who talked me into going to the climbing gym, and I went, and then we went and had all these incredible adventures um, through time. And he ended up, he went and studied abroad in Russia, and he came back a little bit weird. Like, just, you know, he, like, moved back in with us, and we being like, oh, something's off. And he ended up having very, very pronounced schizophrenia to the point of like he ended up in a, a you know in a prison in montana um you know that his parents like were like somehow found out that he was there and he just because like they hadn't had the mental health training in the police department to know what was going on with this guy and he's he spent a decade fighting back from that and is actually um a priest uh that works with homeless people now and he'll, he and I like probably talk once a year on the phone and everyone's like, like, be like, Oh yeah. And we'll talk about climbing all cap together for the first time and all that. And I love that is that that's like, we're in totally two different worlds now. And there's this thing that has this, this little granular bit of meaning to it. Um, and I love that. And then there's other people too, like, you know, for me, like Becca, my wife, um, you know, she and I did this together from a really early um, stage, I think like the first Alpine climb I did, I think it was her first Alpine climb too. And, um, you know, we've done so much else together and so many of those ways we learned to be, um, a happy couple came from those experiences climbing and, you know, making, um, 
adjustments in, in goals or adjustments in missions to based upon how the other person was feeling that day or whatever it was. And that sort of ongoing conversation that's a daily part of life now was formed in the mountains together. So those are the, like that's kind of what I think of. Parenting is sometimes like alpine climbing then, maybe? Uh, yes. Good and bad. Yeah. No, I've got a terrible memory. Okay. Like, I've always had a bad... Me- like, with the alpine climbing thing, like, I was well-suited to it because it was like, that's horrible. And then two days later, I'd be like, that's great. <laughs> and it's very similar. Like, people are like, what was it like when the kid was two? And I was like, good? Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it, like it's sort of like really have just wonderful good habits. Yeah, well, I forget those things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Chris? Who was an early person you, you tied in with who was influential? The, uh, the most important guy I've climbed with is a guy named Rob Van Arnhem, who's uh, from Crested Butte. And um, he, my first year guiding, uh, per, about four years into my climbing, I was guiding already. In Estes um, Park. In Estes Park, yeah. And um, shouldn't have been, but hey. Um, those, that was like pre-AMGA. They were like, come on, just come guide. Um, and he guided that one year, one summer. We, I was only a summer guide, and he was there that one summer, the first summer. And then he never guided again. He was like, I don't like this. And I kept at it. But we started that summer a climbing sort of, uh, you know, partnership that um, lasted for, for decades. Um, he, he's now, unfortunately, he bought a house in Baja. And he's like super into surfing and gone six months a year. So I may have, I kind of lost him to that. Um, although we're still super close and we do climb occasionally. But, um, but the thing that we, we connected on was the big mission, uh, which is something I haven't really talked about on the podcast a lot. But it's this really essential part, I think, of climbing for me. And it's the, it's the idea that if you, you know, if you can't go on some like super gnarly expedition somewhere or anything else, you can just find the big mission in your backyard. Um, the enchainment of so many routes in a day, the, uh, you know, this climb and this climb and this climb, and we're just going to run to and from all of them. And we're going to like make it some little competition with our friends. And the first one was, there was this thing called the front range triple crown, which was to go do, uh, lunches dihedral and, uh, the Naked Edge and Country Club Crack, crack like in a day, which is mostly driving and it doesn't actually take very long. But it was just this fun thing that we'd heard about some friends of ours down there did. And so we did that and then we added, the next year we added the Crack of Fear, which is up in Estes Park. So now we drove to a whole nother climbing area. And that was the beginning and then over the years we did like all the Bridger Jacks in uh, Indian Creek, eight towers in a day, um, and stuff like that. And so we just, he like infected, we kind of just were like, that's what we're going to do. Oh, we did, um, the, the diamond uh, chief's head to spearhead in a day uh, was another one that we did, which is, this is all like, maybe not going over everybody's head, but just doing like, most people would be like, yeah, one of those is an awesome day and an awesome climb. We were like, let's do a bunch of them until we're so tired and we're less like plodding out of there in the middle of the night, just wrecked. And that was a really meaningful thing for me. And, and we just, I climbed El Cap for the first time with him. I, you mentioned that with your buddy and um, that's also super formative. And, and then 10 years later or longer ago, we went back and free climbed it together. Um, so just a guy and, and just, you know, just, 
so so like-minded. And then you look at his life, and I admire him in so many other ways, in the way he conducts his life. And, you know, he's he's a business owner, and he's just a real... Everybody in Crested Bee is just like, yeah, Van Arnhem's solid, like this solid dude. And uh, so, yeah, we, we that, well, that was probably the most important guy I ever climbed with. Sounds like a sort of creativity and adventure sort of thing. Like when people... When you don't just repeat other people's tick lists and you do your do your own thing, which I think is enjoyable. It's like the more contrived it is, the more fun it is sometimes. And yeah, and it's super contrived, you know, especially that front range thing. It's like yeah. just they're classic roots and, you know, it's not even that hard to do, but it was uh, just, you know. And then there was other people doing it. And so you had kind of a, like this weird we didn't really use time ourselves. That wasn't a thing then. That's a big thing in, in all sports, it seems like. Um, like this, but we didn't really time ourselves, but um, just maybe style was an important part of it. I don't know, but you let it be known in your community that you're, oh, we just did the front range triple crown. Just, again, trying to be cool by bicycle. <laughs> yeah, that would be the next one, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we did it in a VW, which is about as fast as a bicycle. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> bicycle breakdown less often. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how is it? You guys are both dads now. Yeah. Um, how has having kids changed your perception of of climbing, or how has the whole thing evolved for you in the last few years because of that? I think that it's really funny because I think when I became a dad, I was like, "This won't change me." Or actually, that's not true. No, no, no. I'll, I'll walk that back. I actually got really frustrated and was like, "Being a dad's going to change who you are," and you're like, "To be frank, no shit." <laughs> like, like I'm aware of that. Like. I'm not an idiot like that that's going to evolve but it was funny with the climbing I would definitely was like I don't think this is going to impact a lot and it has really um, that's been one of the surprising things is it has is I've become somewhat less comfortable um, with some of the risk and um, I have I still love it and I still do it and I still um, encourage my kids I like going and doing it with my sons and and they're starting to like it's starting to take with them and i really see the value and the education because it gave me that's what it gave me and i think that I, they seem to get some of that from it too while having fun you know it's not always a grandiose thing it actually is kind of cool um but i think yeah i did since having kids it's it's i think one it was like you realize like there's less time and some of those situations that you put yourself in, you just thought, oh, it's cool, I'm just good at this and it'll be fine. And you realize, well, it's actually a product of preparation. And so I found that sometimes when I would put myself in more risky situations, I wasn't quite as prepared as I needed to be in them to be as, con to be as solid as I had been five years prior. So for me, it's like, I'm pretty happy. You know, a lot of times I actually like, I go to index I don't see a lot of people, so I don't have my voice recognized. I like hike up to the top of the cliff, like you know, an hour up, and I have a bunch of ropes that I stash, and I just throw them over the edge, and I set up the world's biggest top rope, and I just top rope stuff over and over and over again. I'm basically a rain like man. Three episodes back, right? Or for oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just like, and I get really, I get joy out of it, but it's totally safe. And so that's kind of one of the things that, like, I, I'm finding less reward in the actual risk and more reward in the actual act. That's good. How about you? Um, you know, it didn't, it's changed, it's literally logistics for me. I'm realizing that um, I don't climb as much and um, I'm not as in good a shape because of that. And 
uh, I'm not horribly disappointed in that. I mean, I when we found out we were pregnant, um, that it was I was on board almost immediately, um, and Steph. Uh, because we weren't trying, by the way. Um, the uh, I don't, we're not real, real. Um, we we tell that openly to people. She, she had Steph had a bigger problem with it than I did because I, I just was like, you know what? I'm, I was forty five. I'm forty seven now. Like I, I just said, you know what? I, I've done so much great stuff. Like I wasn't like. I mean, there were some missions out there still that may happen, may not. But um, and the other thing is, I was already getting more scared. I mean, the truth is, is I don't know that I'm climbing any less risky than I am was two years ago because I. My 40s, I'd already started, like, kind of toned it down, and, and not purposely. I was just more scared. I mean, I've talked to other climbers that get getting older, and they're just like, we. I think we just understand the consequences, not just on ourselves, but on our families and friends. And, you know, you, when you're 21, you don't think about any of that stuff. Um, you don't even think about your bones. You're just like... I'll go for it. But now it's like, I mean, even before the kid. So it's fit that I was already sort of scared. Um, and the big mission thing is, you know, that's something I miss a little bit because I just don't have that much time. Um, and also, like, to be in shape for those sorts of things. So I'm much more of a sport climber, Crager, than I used to be. Um, although I'm going to Yosemite next month, so it's not all over. But, um, but yeah, so I, I don't know that, like, my climbing changed in those same ways that are pretty typical I think of having kids and and starting to worry a little bit more about the risk you're taking Um, but yeah of course I don't climb as much because I have a kid Um, but it's just a matter of being okay with that and if you've met my kid like he was here a little bit ago like of course I'm okay with that because he's awesome so um, I feel like maybe 30s maybe 20s I'd have been way more freaked out and more scared and more like oh what about my climbing but what about my climbing you know, I've climbed so much stuff. I'm going to climb more stuff. I still can climb five. You were never that good anyway. <laughs> just face it. Wow. That's true. That's true. I think I, I mean, you're joking around, but man, I plateaued, you know, there's no doubt about it a while ago. So now, now I have a ready-made excuse. I got a kid. He's like, uh, people ask me, how are you climbing? I'm like, I've been injured for two years. They're like, really? What happened? I'm like, I had a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, you're getting more handsome though. Thank you. Yeah, very you much. could really, you could really the bags, the bags <laughs> under my eyes, or the bags really bring out the color in my eyes. You could really work it into your own narrative that you're rebuilding. You know, your chicken and chicken and egg thing or whatever, and be like, "Well, I could have been great. I could have been great. Yeah, yeah. I could have <laughs> been great, but I decided to procreate. Yeah. Yes. That's the T-shirt right there. Uh, are we good? Yeah, I think we're good. Are you pleased? Are you yeah. okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Should I should I wrap it up? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Right. Well, thanks for coming, everybody. I, I hope this has been fun. Thanks. Thank you. Room service? We got beer. You hold beer up this rock, you're insane. I may be insane, but I'm not stupid. I didn't carry it. You did. It's in your pack.
Now it ain't flat. The teachers told me that's where it's at. So I